This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of Einstein and Go-Go for 2019. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Linden. Good morning, madam. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to be back. Yeah, we'll talk about weather soon because, you know, you know something about that, apparently. Or climate. Do you know anything about weather? I know nothing about weather. Yeah, I okay. only know about the statistics of the weather. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Dr. Crystal, welcome. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to have you in the studio. It's fantastic to be back. Uh, it's one of those things where I love summer because it's often seen as a really slow news time over the summer mm. break, which means sometimes, you know, um, editors are kind of scrambling around going, what are we going to put in the media? Oh, quick, let's pull out those science stories. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> in January, bit... there has been quite a great yeah, yeah. amount of science news in my media, which I've been loving. Yeah, we should unpack it a bit for uh, people out there, though. Oh, and Liv's doing our Twitter feed, folks, so um, if you've noticed that there's been no Twitter at all over the summer, that's because I'm lazy and Liv was on the holidays. So <laughs> we should unpack. I mean, we really don't... Uh, we didn't know what we were doing five minutes ago. I didn't even know how to turn the studio on because we've been away for eight weeks and we all forget. But uh, but we're back because we love science and we hope you love science too. We have today a little bit of news for you and then we've got a couple of great guests coming in from the Flory Institute and La Trobe University and then Lyndon's going to tell us some amazing stuff about uh, climate. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Amazing well, stuff. You want. No yeah. pressure. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to. She's been working on it all summer. At, squint at my notes <laughs> and uh, try to remember how to talk about science. Now. Yeah, I'm so going to just just have a chat about yeah, some fun. stuff. I think it'd be, be good. Uh, but look, we've got. Uh, I mean, just to preview the year a bit, there's so many amazing guests who have already sort of um, contacted myself or Triple R about coming on the show this year and. It's going to be great. So, you know, we, we had fun last year, but it always seems to get better in the new year and this. And there's just so much science going on in Melbourne. We get some of the internationals as well, but there's so much science going on in Melbourne that we just can't get enough of, frankly, um, which is great. But let's start off with some news. Uh, Dr. Linden, do you want to go first? Yeah, well, I guess the news that I have, maybe people are already aware of it, but I thought I would talk about it again because it's such a big deal. Uh, if anybody hasn't noticed, today's a great example. It's been really hot. <laughs> <laughs> Newsflash. Newsflash. It's, hot. it's, it's been yeah. really hot. Yes. So the January numbers came in from the Bureau of Meteorology yeah. and it was Australia's hottest January on record. Our hottest month ever on record. The first time that we have had a month averaged over the country that's been above 30 degrees. So if you average all the days and all the nights across all the country above 30 degrees. Can, can I, so I wanted to ask you what, what hottest means. So mm-hmm. it's not peak temperatures, is it, that you're talking about? Is it, no. Is it, is it peak temperatures or so is it average? It, when we say hottest, what does the Bureau mm-hmm. mean? So in this particular instance, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't it's matter. hottest across <laughs> all, all the statistics. Oh, wow. So if you look at um, all of the hottest, the maximum temperatures, so the yeah. hottest temperature of every day, right, you take that at all the stations across Australia over the month, average that, and then kind of map it, in, map it into a grid, mm-hmm. it's been the hottest mm. for days. Uh, it's been the hottest for nights. So the minimum temperatures that we record, it's been the highest minimum temperatures, and you average those together, right. it's been the hottest mean. So the maximum plus yeah, the minimum yeah. divided by two, the mean temperature it's been it's been the hottest. Did you, sorry, did you just say it's been over thirty? Yes. Yeah, so if you average all the day temperatures together, it's been over thirty. It's been over thirty. Wow. That's that's incredible. Like yeah. like because we've 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 all experienced some cooler days. I mean, I actually did bring out a cardigan this mm. week and thought, oh, what is this cold <laughs> feeling that I've, I've forgotten yeah, about? Yeah. Mm. Um, but to average the daily temperatures and have them above 30. Yeah. That's, that's it's, just mind-blowing. It's crazy. And, I mean, you're right, in Melbourne, we've had some stinkers, it's true, but mm. 
the majority of the heat that we've seen, we've just had this like blob of hot air, this yeah, dome yeah, of hot air. It started in December, kind of lobbed up over the centre of Australia. And because the monsoon didn't come until a bit later up in Darwin, there was no moist air travelling down. This blob has just been like lolling around the country, moving over New South Wales, moving over Adelaide, kind of lobbing up and down and just smashing temperatures yeah. all over the place. I think I can't exactly remember the stat, but Canberra has had more 40-degree days this summer than it has in the previous 60 years. Put wow. together. Yeah, wow, put together. Amazing. Oh, my word. Like, the records... There's a there's a statement at the Bureau of Meteorology website if anyone's interested that yeah. just like lays out statistic after like it, I mean, it statistics are for everybody but it's it, these are these are pretty scary numbers. One of the things I, I mean I, I always find this data like you know me I'm fascinated by weather but um, one of the things that I've I've wondered about is some of the more nuanced data. So for example mm. on a day like today it felt bloody hot yeah. by like nine o'clock. You know, I went for a walk this morning and by about nine nine thirty I'm like holy crap. Yeah. And I, I wonder whether there's any been any change as well in that that rapid onset of heat mm. in the mornings because I don't remember it being that hot so early, you know, when I was a child. No, yeah. I know we all, we all remember Everyone things differently. That, they... you know, I also remember my primary school being huge and I oh. went there recently and it was tiny. <laughs> you know, like, things oh. change. But... Yeah, but when you get up at 6am to go to the gym and you walk outside and it's already <laughs> it's yeah. and it's yeah. still dark, you're like, this is wrong. This, yeah, this, is, this is different, yeah. The so. people we need to talk to are the people, builders, people who start early in the yeah. morning and get yeah, to knock yeah. off when it's 35 degrees. Yeah, because yeah. a couple of weeks ago, that really hot day we had a couple of Fridays yeah, ago, I think it was 35 by 8.30 in the morning, you know? And <laughs> they hadn't even got their coffee. Well, but I had to go to work because then they had to yeah, say, yeah. oh, we have to knock off. But, yeah, those kind of 6 a.m. temperatures, those nuanced records, yeah. dates with runs above a certain degree or, you know, yeah, nights above a certain temperature, there's so, a lot of them around. I guess the big question is why? And you sort of alluded to the fact that, you know, there's been different weather systems that have and haven't moved around as, mm. as we might have expected. Mm. But, you know, I guess the biggest question is, well, why are we having this ridiculously hot yeah. summer now? It's a, it is an interesting question and it's funny because normally our hottest summers are associated with El Nino events, yeah. right? When we have um, uh, and the El Nino conditions in the Pacific which sort of inhibit cooler air coming towards us, but we don't have that this year. <laughs> so what if you add that on? Well, don't even, don't even <laughs> want to talk about don't it. Don't go there. No. Oh, man. Yeah, so we're so not yeah. even in an El Nino year. No, we've sort of, there haven't been any big large scale drivers that associate, mm. that can bring, we can say, oh, it's that, it's definitely that. It's really, there's only one thing that you can really point it to. And yeah. we probably all know what that is. So, it, yeah, it's, that, it's interesting. I think there's climate change elephant that, in the room. Yes, I believe so. I mean, the um, temperatures have risen. We all know that. And I think there's some studies being done at ANU at the moment looking at how would this have happened? Could this have happened in a world before a mm. carbon dioxide increase? I actually think it's very early studies, but yeah. nigh on impossible. No, nigh partic on impossible I particularly like those, 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 those bits of modelling where mm. they look at um, what the statistics are of these sorts of events without the added yeah. sea temperatures and so forth. And, yeah. and often, often, you know, you look and there was like a 0.1% chance mm. of these events, but we've had three years in a row. Yes, so, so exactly. Sort of, all of a sudden that looks, you know, even, even the, the biggest denier there would presumably look at that and go, well, hang on, that, that yeah, that seems like mm. you it, run, it's kind of impossible without this. Yeah. So, if you run, yeah. uh, run a climate model 10,000 times with carbon dioxide levels at 350 parts per million, so before mm. the Industrial mm. Revolution, and then you run it yeah. now... Yeah. Um, 10,000 times and look at the distribution of temperatures, yep. you know, um, it's 50 times more likely for the heat that yeah. we've experienced this past month to happen. And I think what's really interesting is the way that that's now changing our cultural conversation around what constitutes bad weather. 
Mm. But I think I think we're now recognising that these extreme heat days are actually just as sort of bad weather days. Like you know, we've had things like you know the new rules about the tennis, about you know yeah. playing under extreme yeah, weather yeah, conditions. Yeah. You know, even today, my heart goes out to everyone who was going to the Pride, Pride March, March yep. um, oh, yeah. for Midsummer because mm-hmm. a lot of those groups have cancelled yeah. because of the mm. extreme weather. But um, but I'd still like to give a big shout out to all the queers in STEM mm. who are uh, who have Woo. been prepping for that event. Um, Look but after um, yourselves today. Yeah, everyone. You just you just want to really build this more of a community conversation yeah. around well well now we live in this world what do we need to yeah. do and to adapt you're right it is about safety too last night i'm going to just out myself here i was at a phil collins concert last <laughs> hey. night yeah, yeah it was excellent <laughs> and there was quite a diverse yeah. range of ages at the festival and it was at the concert <laughs> it was at amy park right it's huge mm. it, it was like you 20, must have been one of the kids there there were other, some other <laughs> younger people there than me and there were 30,000 people there and I'm thinking it was it was stinking hot didn't I don't think it dropped below 20 degrees last night yeah and I was like where are the where's the health like where are the where <laughs> yeah, are the yeah. health professionals around here where are the emergency services just in case where's the there should be more ice available because this is it's yeah, a it's bit of health we're, risk we're, you know? we are moving into but health mitigation mm. I think one of the things that I'm, I'm seeing more of which I, I find is excellent is also an understanding of the difference between weather and climate mm-hmm. and the community seems to be talking more about that that you know these local localized in time weather events are just that but they're also more possible because of shifts in climate. That's right. And so, you know, you don't you don't get more of these localized weather events without a different climate. But climate and weather are not the same thing. No. And and we're we're seeing, you know, so you, you get, you know, and that's where I think some of the deniers are sort of starting to lose ground because they're they're starting to have to deal with this fact that people are saying, well, just because we had three cold days doesn't mean the earth is cooling. Mm. You know, that's weather. <laughs> that's yes. not climate. Yes. And I think I think the community is becoming far more aware of of this distinction. Mm. and how important that distinction is and so forth. So anyway, we could talk about weather yeah. all day. Anyway. Um, Dr. Crystal, what have you start got? To be yeah. <laughs> well, it's hot outside, well, people. It, it feels like 2019 has started as the International Year of Extreme Weather, but actually um, the official um, year of, um, as declared by the United Nations General Assembly, is that 2019 is the International Year of the periodic table. Oh, really? What? <laughs> How are you not? I'm so Hasn't excited about this. Hasn't it had a year before? Is this, this the first time it's had an international year? Well, it's, it's, it's officially the international year because it's um, 150 years since um, the discovery of the periodic system by Dmitry Mendeleev oh. in 1869. So 1869 to 2019 is 150 years. So it's the 150-year oh. anniversary okay. of, of the, the prototype model of the periodic table. And so that was announced, um, officially launched in Paris this, uh, this week um, to huge celebration. Chemistry societies across oh, the world are just losing it. People are selling um, t-shirts. <laughs> oh, t-shirts. Let me tell you, there's t-shirts. There's there's bracelets. Underwear. There's, yeah, there's yeah, everything. everything. All the yep. merch for the periodic table is out there because <laughs> the periodic table, frankly. Is a design classic. Oh, it's awesome! Like yeah. it's it's just such a recognisable symbol. Um, and you know, it, you know, and just this idea of how you arrange all the elements, you know, based on mm. their physical and chemical properties, has really helped us understand, you know, how these things behave. And mm. again, I think the power of the periodic table has been its predictive capacity. No, I was going to say finding new materials based on the table yeah, has been the going, amazing part. There yeah. must be something that fits here and fits here and yeah. fits here. And and those discoveries are ongoing. So mm. there are labs. There's a particular lab in Russia that is now actually pushing those extremes of how well can we actually make element 119 and 120 and 120 
one, mm. things that might not be naturally occurring, but mm. can we can we synthesize them? So it's it's a fantastic year. Um, but it also led me to ask the question, um, well, because it is a design classic, you know, what are there other, how has it been imitated or, or co-opted? And, and this led me down a bit of an internet rabbit hole because it's an international, there's a periodic <laughs> table for everything. Like oh, you can right, find yeah. a periodic table of meat, a periodic <laughs> table for, of hardware. And but my favourite that I found was, um, I should confess, is the international, uh, is the, sorry, is the um, unofficial periodic table of swearing. Oh, um, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, yeah. Um, can you do the first, do you know the first 20? Uh, <laughs> Does. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they That's were, the kind, of, they were kind of quite, you know, interesting um, sort of Britishisms, like, you know, a Pratt in a hat kind of thing, right, like, you, yeah, know, yeah, a bit, uh, you know, all the way through to, um, you know, some other uh, you know, um, um, acronyms uh, that are being used uh, online these yeah. days. Anyway, um, so I think uh, it's the International Year of the Periodic Table. There's a lot of great um, uh, art that meets science uh, stuff out there. There's tons of posters, collectibles. It's a great year to kind of think about... Um, you know the elements that uh, that make up our world. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I, it reminds me of a, a, a conversation I had with my year eleven, uh, year twelve chemistry teacher after I told him I was never doing chemistry again. Um, you know, physics guys didn't like the beakers and stuff. And but I said, I remember saying to him, the, the one thing I do like about you guys is the periodic table. Yeah. Uh, because you know, because all sciences use it. That's the thing. It's not just chemistry. But all no, sciences really it, use it, it, and it's, it's amazing. It's physics. It's chemistry. Yeah. It's biology. Mm, it's mathematics. It's, it's, it's mathematics, all. It's all in there. It's life. Yeah. It's you know. I think the periodic table is a beautiful piece of um of, of what humanity has achieved i think yeah. it's an absolute so key thing does that mean we're doing a special this year bringing our favorite element you're listening to einstein and go go folks it's 2019 and lyndon's still on the show somehow because she knows about climate uh yeah we'll do that for you um what yes. would yours will be carbon mm, or oxygen potassium maybe uh, yeah yeah, it's pretty reactive. <laughs> uh, we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in a moment with our first guest for today. Thanks for listening to Triple R. Three. Triple R. Ah. Ah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. In the studio with us now is Associate Professor Kevin Barnum. He is from the Flora Institute for Neuroscience and Mental Health. Kevin, welcome to the Triple R Studio. Thanks, Sharon. Look, it's great to have you in. We, and now we've uh, seen, we were just talking during the break that we've seen a lot of uh, press around your work because it's been quite, uh, quite incredible what uh, what you guys have just announced. Um, first of all, what I want to start with because we're talking about some of the potential treatments and so forth for things like motor neuron disease. So, what I might get get you to do first is give us just a quick rundown of what what's happening in motor neuron disease and what the existing well, I guess there aren't many treatments, but what the existing tactics are for dealing with that. Oh dear. Um, what, what's happening at the moment of motor neuron disease mm. is a little bit depressing, to be totally honest. Mm. I mean, there are really no effective drugs. There's, there's Riluzole, um, which at best gives a minor uh, delay and, and onset. Uh, the FDA has just approved Aderivone for use in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, the treatment, that, that treatment regime is actually quite horrendous. That's, you've right. actually got to go in, I think, once every two weeks and have an infusion. Oh, wow. So, yeah. um, and I think the jury's still out on, on how effective that would be. Um, I think it's everyone's, most people with motor neuron disease is a horrendous disease. Mm. And, um, there isn't a lot out there. And, and that's, I think, part of the reason why, you know, with, 
our, our results that people have sat up and taken a little bit of notice because the, the, effectively there's nothing. Yeah, and, and what's happening, I mean, over what period do people get the disease? How long does it take to sort of progress to the point where it's really problematic? And, you know, what age do you sort of typically start at? We'll deal with the age question, and it's basically like most of the neurodegenesis, it is, it is age-related, mm. unless, unless you have a genetic form of the disease. Right. Uh, and, and generally speaking, into the 40s, 50s is, is sort of like the answer. For most people who get um, diagnosed with the disease, it's, it's actually three to five years is, is, is life expectancy. Mm. So oh. as, as, as neurodegenerative diseases go, and we, we're used to thinking about Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's yeah. disease, and, and, and those diseases are... Decadal. Decadal, yeah. 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 Uh, whereas motor neuron diseases, generally speaking, um, you know, three to five years is... is and yeah, the, the the notable exception, of course, was Stephen Hawking, right? Um, yep. Who had some really weird form of the disease, mm. which I'm not 100 sure about. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I suppose a lot of people would calibrate what they know on motor neuron diseases by Stephen Hawking, because he's such a prominent example. But uh, I, I wasn't aware of how rare his version was. Yeah, it's very, very rare, and, and I, I don't think we fully understand that. Um, yeah. yeah. So, like, he got to a certain stage, and then the Just disease stopped. Stopped. Yeah. Yeah. So. Hmm. Unfortunately, now, most people know that it's it's death. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you've been working on some new a new type of or new family of compounds uh, to to you know potentially be treatments down the track. I mean, can you give us a bit of an idea of when, when when we talk about these compounds? I mean, how far from the existing attempts have you gone, and, and why did why did you guys go in that direction? Well, the first thing to notice is the, the compound of interest is called copper ATSM, and, mm-hmm. and the interesting thing there is copper. Okay. Um, you know, I've heard you talk about the periodic table before, so um, yeah, copper's my favourite element at the moment. <laughs> there you go. Um, I told you it's a good idea, Shane. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so uh, uh, if you have a look at most uh, med chem approaches, the first the first rule is that it, it's um, organic molecules, yep. so not not containing a metal. Yeah. Um, I have a real philosophical objection to that. I mean, basically, what happened is in the 19th century when they were putting together things like. Uh, the periodic table. They, they love classifying things. Right. And, and there was a series of elements they classified were organic of life and then there's a series of elements that are classified as not for life. They were called inorganic. And so because mm. this all depended on 19th century ability to detect mm. molecules, copper's an essential element. Yeah. And we have, uh, we have bucket loads of metal in our bodies. Take a breath, Shane. Yeah, exactly. Take yeah. a breath. Every, every, every uh, capture u- uh, utilisation and transport of oxygen is dependent on on a metal, mm. uh, yeah. So for me, uh, medicinal chemists going into making these things with, without the use of metals and things like that is really going into battle with one arm tied behind your back. Yeah. And so the first thing you know is, yeah, we've we've taken it on that. We're we're chasing down something that reduced oxidative stress, so it had to deal with with oxygen and, and like molecules. You've got to put a metal in there, right. <laughs> yeah. but yeah. it's got to be it's got to be one that you understand. And obviously. Metals can be pro-oxidant too, so they can they can drive the oxidative stress. So, yeah. So that, that's the key feature, and it's the key is the metal, mm. uh, is is it to its its activity. Mm. Um, and so you you've looked at this now in sort of a mouse model. I mean, what what exactly is this new compound doing? Like, how does it work as a as a functional material to to, is it halting motor neuron disease? I mean, this is not something you can cure, presumably, in the way we're looking at it. It's something where you want to you want to stop its progression. It's a very, very interesting question, one that my colleagues and I uh, have continual debates. Again, coming back to how we actually discovered the molecule, um, 
we were doing the actual molecule itself was actually a control compound for a series of other experiments that we were doing mm. about a decade ago. <laughs> right. I love that. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's like, and this is the one that won't work. Yeah. Well, no, and it, it, it worked exactly as we thought it would. But right. as that project was wrapping up, uh, I had a conversation with a colleague of mine, Paul Donnelly, um, and I said, and he was, we were talking about. Um, you know, this thing having the potential to be an antioxidant, and we knew from our previous work that it crossed the blood-brain barrier. And I was interested in oxidative stress, and I knew that motor neuron disease and Parkinson's disease, oxidative stress was probably a contributor to the pathology. Mm. So we just took a fly on it. Basically, this, this compound has never been near a cell, cul- cell culture experiment. We went straight into animals. Uh, Is we- that quite rare to do it that way? It, it's a risk. No, no one does it that way. Oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> it's very oh. um, No, no, no. It's, it, look, we broke every rule in the book. For starters, we had a metal compound. We didn't worry mm. about cell culture. We just threw the thing into the animal models. And Bob's your uncle. And it's not, not a single animal model, I should point out, Shane. We, we put that into four models of Parkinson's disease. It's now by nothing into three or four models of motor neuron disease, and it's worked every time. Mm. So this, this compound's had the most thorough preclinical workup. Um, not only that, there's a there's an organisation in the United States uh, called the um, I've got to get back to this, the ALS Therapeutic uh, something or other Institute, mm, mm. and they actually took the compound and tested it. Now they've been testing compounds for 15 years, and never once had they been able to show that what people had published worked. Yeah, right. that is so critical in biomedical research mm. is reproducibility in a mm. different environment. So that's outstanding. So that they did it, and also uh, there's a uh, Joe Beckman in Oregon also reproduced our results. So. Mm. And this thing is about as robust as, as it can get in terms of the preclinical. And when you say it works, I mean, what, what does that mean in this case? Well, in, in the um, motor neuron, you overexpress a protein yep. that, that will eventually kill the animal. Mm-hmm. Um, so what you're looking to do, if you're um, ameliorating the effects of that protein, is basically extend life. Right. Uh, so it's, it, this thing was extending life, I think, around 15 20%. But one of the things we were very, very keen to make sure we did is the timing of, of, of the treatment. So, yeah, Peter Krauss did a lot of this work. And what, what we did is we figured out when the symptoms, onset of symptoms, and we actually gave the drug after the onset of symptoms. Mm. So, which is obviously what the sort of situation you're going to deal with in the clinic. In reality, yeah. yeah. So, mm. um, yeah, that's... And so in terms of, so you've done this in the mouse models, and this is one of these areas where I think, you know, I always be very careful how I nuance these questions, um, especially when someone says that you have a three to five year survival rate, because, you know, there are people out there listening who either themselves or have family members who are affected by this disease, and they hear about these tests in animals, and then the, the real question is, well, what are we looking for in terms of the time frame to this being utilised in the clinic? So so where are you at in that process? So what's created all the, the buzz at the beginning of this year is, is we've, we've done a, a phase 1B study. In, in, mm-hmm. So basically we did, again, we broke the rules. Um, we did the phase the phase 1. I'm, I'm sure there were really good rules around the clinical <laughs> yeah. trial. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but normally you do them in healthy people to start with. So. Yeah. Okay, so we, yeah. we went straight into disease, uh, people with the disease, uh, looking for classic markers of, 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 of motor strength, um, mm-hmm. uh, cognition and, and breathing capability. Mm. All the markers come back very positive. Um, so uh, that's encouraged the the, you know, the company that's actually taking this work forward, uh, CMD, to, to to plan a larger scale uh, phase two so, trial. And the phase one trial is just for safety. Is that is that safety correct? and dose dose finding? Dose finding, right. right. So so this is not necessarily a clinically viable dose that these people are being, or, or you know, the, the optimised viable dose that you would be given down the track. 
I think it is because we looked at uh, the, pharmaco- okay. the pharmacokinetic profile says that we were hitting doses in the phase one that were equivalent to what the mouse was showing efficacy okay. now. So we're getting those doses. So yeah. And I think what's really interesting is, as you said, this phase one trial wasn't in healthy human volunteers. It was actually mm. in a patient group. So you yes. were able to collect some um, kind of markers or insights into some of the. Well, we we, we did the we did the classic test. Like I said, we we did motor strength tests. We did um, cognitive tests and um, so, uh, respiratory and all everything trended in the right or went in the yeah. right direction. So, okay, even so nothing went backwards. Yeah. So even though it's not an efficacy trial, it was enough of a positive signal to really um, let's go and spend the big dollars yes, on the larger Yeah, trial. and actually mm. to sort of green light the bigger study. Uh, yeah. So the phase two trials this year. Hopefully starts middle of the year, yeah. Yep. And then, on. and then how far is it between that and someone in the clinic being able to, well, I guess people can access it through the trial, but, um, beyond that, what, what's well, the, the, tri- the trial's due to run for 12 months, so yep. by the time you do your recruitment <coughs> and your analysis, mm-hmm. we're, we're guessing Couple roughly years. two years, yep. yeah. Um, is the clinical trial going to have sites in Australia? It'll be done in Australia. The question is whether, whether there's any, it, it'll mostly be done, I think, in Sydney and Melbourne, yeah, um, although the details are still being worked out whether, whether there are sites overseas, that's still to be determined. Mm. Um, but no, no, the majority of the work will be carried out here. Mm. Um, and in, in terms of Kevin, in terms of the, the drug itself, I mean, sometimes you know, there's been a lot of the monoclonal antibodies and all different things that have come out in the last few years, which just incredible for different diseases. Um, how does this one play out in terms of its cost base and its expense? Is it going to be one of those drugs that is really super expensive for, for people to access, or is it is it you know, I mean, copper? relatively simple to make you've been using it for a while is it is it where's it going to sit well to be to be totally honest that that's a question that's above my pay grade okay um but you know after the the, the data we've worked with at sigma are now producing the material you can actually buy the, yep. the drug from sigma yep. uh and the amount that we try treat the the mice with would if we'd gone on board at all for sigma that would have cost us 80 grand right okay so um if we, you know, we make it ourselves obviously but yeah. um I don't know. I, the nature of these, the nature yeah, of these things are. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's, what you're trying to say is, though, it's not a complex biological mm, protein yeah, or a, or one of those really complex kind of cellular no, it's, therapies. It's a, it's a small molecule. It's a small molecule. Mm, yeah. I think it's really interesting that it crosses the blood-brain barrier. Does that also, you know, how does that affect the toxicology of the drug in terms of its, you know, any other, you know, negative effects? We have yet to see any negative effects, um, mm. to be totally honest. Um, there was all very, very tolerable. Um, and I think that's probably got to do... Yeah, we, we still debate the mechanism of action. Uh, um, what we're finding is that it, the, drug, the, drug, the compound itself was originally used as a, an imaging agent for hypoxia. Right. And mm. it has actually... So you can radio-label the copper okay, mm. and, and use it as an imaging agent. And what we've seen is that across the various different diseases, the, the drug actually accumulates in the tissue that's... Not healthy, you know. So, for instance, it, it accumulates in motor neurons, in ALS, and it accumulates in, in the substantia nigra. So, so it goes where you want it to go. It goes where it wants yeah. it to go. So, there's this. It, it, I think in, in healthy tissue, it, it doesn't do much at all. Wow. So, yeah. I think, yeah, we've we've put enormous doses into mice without any issues. Uh, the, the, the phase one clinical trials come back, and again. Yeah, it's, everything's sweet. Mm. Well, Kevin, look, it sounds uh, incredibly promising, and I think for anyone um, who's been affected by this disease, had family members affected, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, I mean, it's you, you know, whenever I he- we've had many guests over the years talk about various, you know, ALS and um, MND and so forth, and we had uh, Ashley Bush on uh, just about a year ago talking about Alzheimer's, and, and again, metal being important in his work, and 
it, it, you know, these, these diseases, they, they reach so far and they're, and they're so horrendous um, for everyone involved that anything that sounds positive coming out as a, a very new type of treatment, I think is, you know, we've seen a lot of well, uh, think, incremental stuff, but, you know, the completely new stuff I think is exciting. I, I, I don't think you're actually going to solve this problem by playing to the rules. I think you've, yeah. got, you've got to actually break yeah. the rules. Agreed. So, yeah. Yeah. Look, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us and um, we'll, we'll get you back in a, in a year or so when, you know, the trial's running and, and talk further about how the results are going, but uh, it's great to hear it's been done here in australia too so you know citizens in in australia can take part if, if need be but um but also that you know keep a keep as much of the science going here in in our local cities which is great so well done um well done to the floor for supporting the work and thanks so much for chatting to us thank you guys we're going to take a break for some music folks and we'll be back in just a moment with our second guest from la trobe university three triple Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein to Go Go on Triple R. In the studio with us now is our second guest for today. Professor David Winkler is from the Institute of Molecular Science at La Trobe University. David, welcome to the studio. Oh, thanks, Shane. It's great to be here. Look, it's great to have you in. And I should say, the Institute of Molecular Science over the last couple of years has sent us so many amazing guests. Like, we're very really? thankful of that. It's been, it's really, um, I, I, I'm going to have to go and have a look at just how big it is at some stage, because it sounds like a pretty big institution. Is that right? Yeah, it's a big multidisciplinary institution. So you can get physicists, biologists, chemists, mathematicians all working together. And I think that's the way science is being done these mm. days. Yeah. There's a big bio buzz out there at, uh, at La Trobe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, they're, do, they're doing well. Um, but no, we, we've had, we've had such a diversity of guests from the Institute, which is fantastic. Now, you're working in the area of robotics and robots. And I, I think, uh, in particular, your work's been around this idea of what robots will look like in the future. And can you, I mean, what, what's the sort of standard view of that? I mean, what do people typically, I mean, presumably it all comes from movies. I mean, my, my view is completely from the Terminator films. I mean, I assume that's what it's going to be. Mine's from Wally. Uh, <laughs> Wally, yeah. Well, actually, people have been talking about mechanical men for about 2,000 yeah, years, the Chinese, yeah. the Greeks, yeah, right. you know, whatever, uh, Romans. There was a guy called Hero of Alexandria who invented the first vending machine, believe it or not, right. to dispense holy water, which was a kind of simple <laughs> robot. So people have been trying to make robots, yeah. and they're trying to make them look like mechanical people or mechanical yep. animals, really. Mm. But our thesis is that really what nature does is they say, I've got a particular environment that I need a species to work in. They have to be able to survive. They have to be able to do certain things. They have to adapt to the environment. They don't care what it looks like. You come up with stingrays and snakes and deep sea fish and whatever. Mm, mm. It's interesting. I I suppose, I mean, one analogy for me there is that we've seen um, this in some degree in uh, orbital devices where we've gone from, you know, large scale satellites to these small cube sets and all these things where people, they're no longer designing these monstrous beasts. They're designing things for what they're used for. And sometimes that's something that's the size of a shoebox. It doesn't need to be you know, huge as, as, as it once was. In, in terms of robotics, though, one of the things I've always found interesting is how we forget how much robotics is used already in industry, especially, you know, in car manufacturing and so forth. And these, these presumably are fairly precision-designed forms of robotics where they are optimised for particular tasks. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, that's what's called structured environments where mm. you know exactly what the robot has to do, it knows where the parts are, knows what it has to do. And these things, although they don't look like humans, they're kind of doing human type things. They yeah. pick something up, they move it across, they bolt it in. So it's basically a kind of a part of a human if you like. Whereas what we're saying is if you pick the task in the environment and particularly unstructured environments like going yeah. to a jungle or the Antarctic mm-hmm. or yeah. space, we don't know what you're going to meet. 
you need to have something that's very adaptable and it can learn. It can be its body is such that it can survive in the environment, but also it can learn and adapt to things as it goes when it meets new things, yeah. which a normal robot can't do. It meets something it hasn't seen before and it falls over, it dies, or whatever yeah. happens yeah. doesn't function. Like a step. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something simple. Um, so, so what would that what would that look like in terms of our ability to design them? Because it sounds like there's some parameters there that you you speak of that are very specific. So it would have to. So perhaps um, temperature, for example, it might have to work in an environment where the temperature was quite low. But then there's a whole lot of parameters you're talking about that would presumably be completely variable and unknown prior to the robot experiencing that. So what does that translate to in terms of design? Well, fortunately, with this protocol we have, you can simulate the entire process, the materials, the morphology, the controller, and you can also simulate the environment. You know mm-hmm. if you're going to a hot or a cold environment, you pretty much know what you're going to get, but you don't know what you're going to meet in terms of obstacles and things like that. So um, this evolutionary process can pick materials that will function at low temperature or high temperature or whatever, yep. and it can and the evolutionary process can design components and sensors and actuators and things like that specifically designed to function in that particular environment, tough environment, and then the controller will figure out how to make it all work together nice and smoothly. Right. So it's completely, it's almost the other way around to how robots have been done, where engineers have said, okay, I need a human-like robot that does this, so I'll build something that looks like a human, and humans aren't very good in bad environments. <laughs> you put us under yeah. the water or in the Antarctic or yeah. in the desert, we don't do very well. We don't do well. But there's creatures that nature's designed yeah. that do extremely well, and mm-hmm. they, they thrive in those environments. So Basically, the take-home message here is that we can use that approach to design robots in a completely different way without putting our own biases, engineering biases, if you like, onto robotics. Just let the environment and the task and the materials decide what the robot should look like. So how much of that is error-based? Because when we look at evolution in biology, it's often a mistake that ends up being an advantage. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and that can be caused by radiation, it can be caused by a whole other things, but you know, usually they're you know, genetic errors that make differences that end up being advantages, and those advantages then propagate. How is that? So when we use the term evolution in robotics, how much of this will be sort of based on those sort of random errors that occur versus, so I suppose, an optimization process that's fairly linear? Well, it really is based on errors. What you do is you make a whole a bunch of examples, and some mm-hmm. of them perform better than others. Right. Some of them will have differences, and you pick the best of those, and you actually do a if you like, an in silico mutation to develop another population of robots based on the ones that were the best before, right. but a little bit different. And then you test them against functionality. You see how fit they are, if you like. The ones that aren't so fit, you kill off, mm-hmm. metaphorically. Yep. And the ones that are good, you keep, and then you mutate, mutate them again. And as you go through these cycles, eventually the performance goes up goes up, and gets better and better and better. Yeah. Just like happens in life, except the creatures that don't do very well die, die. Yep. and they don't reproduce. And is it- is this something you you do in a modelling sense or you do it actually by physically making them? It's largely modelling. We're able to simulate. There's a You've heard of the Human Genome, Genome Project. Well, yep. there's also something that Obama started in 2010 called Materials Genomes Project where they're trying to figure out ways of simulating the properties of advanced materials, materials we haven't seen before, 
by um, in silico or computational methods. If you can do that, you can basically do the whole simulation process, the design of the robot, the testing of the robot can be done largely in silico. You have to do some experiments, of course, just mm. for reality checks, but largely it can be done in silico. And, of course, you can do that much, much quicker yeah. than yeah. doing real experiments and, of course, yeah. a lot cheaper as well. Yeah. One of the things I find, you know, when you look at biology is, and you look at different particular animals and so forth, you think, what, what was biology thinking there? Like, this is so weird, mm. but it's optimised to the conditions. Absolutely. Will, will we not be able to recognise you know, what these robots will look like? Is that part of this, is that they'll be so out of our normal mindset because so much of robotics has been based on making things look like they're human. Yeah, exactly. And presumably these things, you know, it might be something that looks like a snake or it might be something that looks yeah. so completely different to what we would normally expect. It it, it feels as though we won't even recognise the design yet. Well, I think that's likely. There's a famous experiment done quite a few years ago by NASA. They needed a, an antenna on a spacecraft and rather than get an engineer to design it, they got an, an evolutionary algorithm to design it mm. and they just let it do whatever it wanted to do. It said it has to be this, you know, this size and has to have these radio um, characteristics and it designed something that looked totally weird and just looked like a bent coat hanger basically right, yeah. but it works superbly well but no engineer would ever have made it yeah, yeah so i think the same thing will happen here yeah it sounds like this what you're proposing is kind of a bit of a paradigm shift towards how robots are being developed and i know this work is done from people across across the country and in various institutions across the world so are you kind of uh, putting in bets now about where you want to test this, the first kind of case study that you want to try out? Yes, we're putting in grant application, putting in a grant application this year for funding to actually do the first prototype. So depending on what happens with the grant funding scheme, if maybe it's a bit too radical, I don't know, but hopefully mm. it'll get funded. But I think other people will pick it up as well. Yeah. I'd just like to, to say this was actually uh, a project started in CSRO when I was worked there and... I've moved to La Trobe, but it's largely still driven by CSRO. Yeah. It, it's interesting. One of the things I, I find uh, it must be fascinating to you guys, but we have so many different environments on Earth that, you know, like extreme environments too, not just, you know, this one's rough, this one's smooth, but, you know, like extreme environments in terms of temperature, chemical composition, you know, pressures, all sorts of things. It seems as though you, you, you'd be able to, like, test these in so many different scenarios, and which which then leads to, you know, what can we do with them elsewhere? Mm. Yeah, it seems like there's a, exactly. a good opportunities there. So how do you pick the first one? I mean, if there's so many things you could do, like how have you gone about the process of prioritising, well, well, given where is there the greatest unmet need or where we could have the most impact? or Where are the robots failing yeah, or, the most or where, the is, or where is the example where we could most easily demonstrate proof of concept? You know, how, how have you made that decision about what to apply this to first? I think we have to pick something quite simple to begin with and something that we kind of understand. But rather than us designing it, we let this paradigm design it and to see if we get something A, that works, and B, that looks maybe at least some of the solutions look like solutions we've already picked. Just sort of a bit of a reality check to make sure it's going to work. Yeah. And then we can mm -hmm. kind of go to town and just let it go crazy, basically, mm -hmm. and come up with all kinds of weird things. Yeah, this was going to ask you the same sort of thing where you've got, <clears throat> you've got a scenario where there's an existing robot doing this job somewhere. It'd be interesting to see what the algorithm comes up with relative to that, if that scene is doing it quite well. And yeah. just how different it would be or what, what opportunities or advantages. How, how much flexibility do you have in terms of letting the algorithm choose materials and even, you know, or, or choose parameters for materials that perhaps we don't have yet. Yeah, well that's, that's really the point of the human, of the um, materials genome project. Mm. If we can get to the point, we're getting close to that now, being able to simulate properties of materials, even ones we haven't made before, reasonably reliably, 
there's, it's been estimated the number of possible materials we could make using the laws of chemistry is around about 10 to the 100. Wow. So given this, <laughs> given there's 10, there's 10 to the 80 particles of matter in the universe. Yeah. There isn't enough matter in the universe <laughs> to make, to make all. all the materials. Wow. So we've got an infinite palette of, of yeah. things to make material, make things from, which will have a whole variety of properties. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of materials, maybe diverse materials that have the suite of properties that we need for a particular application yeah. and the probably things we haven't used before. So at the moment, robots tend to use things that we've got hanging around, like metal and aluminium and stuff, yep. plastic. Does does the algorithm also allow you to go down to this sort of molecular robotic scale where you know, you're actually using molecules to do jobs rather than sort of the traditional view of the large mini-component robot, but more just almost the, the chemistry at the nanoscale to, to do robotic tasks. Is that something that's in there as well? Yeah, I think that's in the distant future. Um, it's hard enough to do it in Big. large scale, yeah. but there certainly are people working on nanorobots. Mm. That was going to be my question too. And these are self-assembling, so obviously these things are so small you can't actually put the components together. So what people have done is they figured out how to make bearings and wheels and mm. rods and yeah, things like that yeah. spontaneously assemble in a in a, a test tube or something and now the tricky bit is how do you get them all to go together in the right way and yeah. it's possible you could use dna to do that because dna right. is superbly good at you can label the components and then the dna knows it only has to stick to that component yep. and hopefully the bits yeah. will come together in the right way but we're a very very long way away from that yet yeah nice yeah no, that's. I was uh, just yeah. gonna. I was wondering how <clears throat> the scale would reduce. You know, looking yeah. forward into the far distant future about nano robots, and you know, we don't understand how things need to evolve to work in the body, and that would. It's an amazing yeah. application of this. I just love that because that's where the materials to all become different, mm. and their properties change as soon as you get to those sizes. David, look, it's fascinating stuff, and it's really good to. Um, it'd be good to see how you know we talk to you when some of these examples of what that evolutionary process actually delivers in terms of an optimized robot for an optimised for a particular task and just how, seeing how different that is to what we, we as humans and engineers and so forth thought it should look like. Um, sounds like we're, we're going to get some surprises. Thank, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us and good luck with the work. That's great. Yeah, it'd be great to come back and also I could talk about my favourite element, xenon, and that's an amazing property. <laughs> yeah, what, what, what is your favourite element? Why xenon? <laughs> yeah, xenon? Xenon because I work with a, a, a commercial project with a company called Air Liquide Santé in France. I've always wanted a research project where I have to go to Paris once a year. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's fantastic. Good choice. Um, but xenon, all the noble gases, as they're called, are completely chemically unreactive, and everyone thinks, mm. okay, boring, boring, boring. Really got to beat them over the head to make them do anything. But they've got a fantastic spectrum of biological activity, and we're, we're putting a few papers out now that are really expanding on this and saying, you know, atoms can be drugs, atomic drugs. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And they make good lamps. Okay. <laughs> they do. Uh, thanks so much, David, and uh, we'll talk to you again sometime in the future. Professor David Winkler is from the Institute of Molecular Science at La Trobe University. We're going to take a short break for some station announcements, and we're back. Lyndon's going to teach us something, hopefully, for the last few minutes of the show. Three. Triple. There you are listening to Triple R. Dr. Linden, you're going to teach us something. Oh, I've got nine minutes. All yeah, right, let's go. go. Limber up. <laughs> so, you know how it's been very warm here? It's been hot. We were just talking about that at the top of the show, how yeah. hot it's been. Still is. Still hot. is hot yeah. outside. It's quite cool in the studio. But in the US, of course, people might have seen on the news that it's been very cold. 
it's been really cold up there. They've had record-breaking temperatures, minus 40 degrees Celsius. I want to say polar vortex. Oh, yes. Yeah? A lot of people are saying polar is that, vortex. Is that something to do with it? So, yeah, that's what I thought we could have a bit of a chat about, this term polar vortex. People love it, the beast from the east, this giant polar vortex, and I thought it could be cool to have yeah. a bit of a chat about what that is and what that kind of means. Hmm. Oh, I don't know what it means. What's a polar vortex? Go on. A polar vortex <laughs> is a big kind of... Um, vortex, like yeah. a big massive whirlpool, Swirly. really cold yeah. air that sits above the poles. It sits above, there's one above the Arctic and there's one above the yeah. Antarctic. But to get, to understand the polar vortex and how it affects the weather over the northern hemisphere, we need to understand a little bit about the stratosphere. Okay. Stratosphere? Yeah, yeah. Got that one, Shane? You yeah. probably. High stuff. High stuff, that's yeah. right there. Yeah. yeah. So the tro- Really cold air. That's really right. The air. troposphere is the bottom 10 kilometres yep. or so of the atmosphere. That's where most of our weather happens. Above that, where the air is really thin and where temperatures kind of start to increase as you get further away from the Earth because there's ozone up there and it mm. absorbs UV mm-hmm. radiation. Mm-hmm. That's what's called the stratosphere. Mm. It's about 20 k's above the surface of the Earth above the equator, mm. and then it comes down to about 7 k's above the surface of the Earth mm. when you get to the poles, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, so up there with the planes and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So your planes yeah. fly yeah. at about 10 or 10 11 k's, k's yeah. above yeah. the surface, yeah. and so you're, you're in the you're stratosphere because the there's not much air around there and there's less drag. That's why the planes yeah. are up there. Yeah. And in the winter time, right, in the winter hemispheres, when it's dark I was over the poles, jet planes. Jet planes. Yeah, not props. Oh, sure. Yeah, too high. Okay, mm. sure. Yeah, no, cool. <laughs> um, you get... <laughs> In the winter hemisphere, in the winter time, you get this big temperature difference between the equator, it's really hot, mm-hmm. you get the same amount of sun all the time, and then at the poles, where in the winter, you get no sun, mm-hmm. right? And with this big temperature difference and the fact that the Earth spins around, what you get is this big polar jet and this polar vortex. It's called a polar vortex or the stratospheric polar vortex or the night jet. That's my favourite term for it, this night jet. Right, right, right. It spins around and around and around. I've heard Dr Ailey describe it as a big dam, this really, really fast winds that spin all around and, like, trap this cold air in the stratosphere. Right. And the way that I kind of, when I was trying to figure it out and understand it, I imagined this column of really fast sheepdogs, like, running around and around and around, <laughs> around like, protecting this, blocking this big uh, lob of warm, cold air that happens every year. It happens every year. But sometimes um, you get a big weather system or a big high or something that will plonk. It happens more in the Northern Hemisphere than the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah. That will push this night jet, this polar vortex. It'll give it a bit of a wobble, right? It'll send a big wave of energy all the way up through the, the troposphere into the stratosphere. And it'll kind of knock these sheepdogs these night sheepdogs sort of off their course a little bit. They might kind of slow down or fall over or they'll even start going in the opposite direction. And when that happens, you get this massive column of really cold air and it will collapse a bit on itself. When it collapses and when it um, compounds all together, it will heat up, right? You get this air sort of um, collapsing and it will heat up. It'll heat up about up to 50 degrees in a few days, right? And when that happens, you get... Um, this all happening, happening up in the stratosphere, and sometimes that can trickle down and affect what's going on in the troposphere. Okay. So they don't always talk to each other, but sometimes they do. And when that happens, you've got these stratospheric sheepdogs freaking out, falling over, everything collapsing on itself, and that will then affect what's going on down in the troposphere because we've got a similar jet. It's a little bit wider, but a similar jet that will slow down. And when that happens, the cold pool of air that's around the Arctic will be able to escape a little bit because these sheepdogs, this really fast dam of wind, will meander a little bit and bring this cold, allow this cold air to come a little bit closer to the equator. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to me that, you know, when we talk about that polar part of it, because, Mm. you know, we we all know that the temperature's changing 
and polar ice is decreasing mm. but this minor fluctuation is enough to like have massive weather effects absolutely quite a, a fair latitude down yeah. from that polar region absolutely and we're not we're not talking you know minor changes in weather like in the u.s at the moment you know half the place is frozen so cold yeah, yeah. amazing temperatures they're setting the train lines on fire in chicago yeah. so the trains can run people i saw a video of someone throwing water out of their balcony and it just kind of sublimating you know just yeah, turning yeah. To, to ice is amazing um and yeah there's a couple of interesting things the first thing is about predictability because when we see this when a weather system can affect what's going up in the stratosphere and it warms it like that really mm. quickly, that's known as a southern stratos- sudden stratospheric warming event. And meteorologists in the Northern Hemisphere can see it happening mm. and it, it's a, quite a strong predictive uh, tool, right? So it doesn't always mean it's going to be cold and it doesn't always mean that a cold mm. event is associated with what goes on up in the stratosphere, but they can get about two weeks of warning. They say, oh, something cold this way comes, like it, it might happen. And that's a really, that's really fascinating scientifically to think that you can yeah. get predictive skill on what's going high up in the atmosphere to what's going to affect us on the ground. Yeah. But the other thing you said, Dr. Shane, about climate change and sort of warming temperatures is there's a lot of active research going on at the moment suggesting that maybe as the Arctic warms up much faster probably than what's going on at the equator, the chances of this jet being disrupted of this dam mm. of of sheepdogs kind of getting affected a bit more regularly, it, it could happen because we've got this mm. decrease in the difference in temperature. Do, do we have a lot of information on the stratosphere? Because it seems to me, I mean, we have a lot of ground-based observations, mm. obviously, sea-based mm. observations. And this stuff is, you know, the high balloon stuff, right? I yes. mean, you know, they're, they're those really big, beautiful balloons they yeah. put up to very high. I mean, yeah. is there a lot, I mean, I assume there's a lot of satellite data these days as well, but do, do we have that level of detail for the stratosphere look i think we're getting we are getting more and more information and there are lots mm. like you say lots of uh balloons that are going up and measuring things and i think a lot of obs were done up there uh for the ozone hole as well a lot yeah, of observations right, yeah. but yeah compared to what we have on the ground Pretty it's minimal. not as much and it's not as long either mm, you know yeah, yeah. and is this because people didn't really think as you were saying earlier that they were as connected as they could be like is it because we've kind of gone well the stratosphere kind of keeps to itself so mm. we don't need to really look too much at how it affects the troposphere but now we can sort of start to see that there's a lot more of an interplay there yeah the literature on what's going on in the stratosphere is much smaller than what happens in the troposphere and there has been an understanding that they do affect each other right you know okay. big thunder thunderstorms that happen around the equator can shoot stuff up into the stratosphere and then that kind of falls down that's you know how your cfcs get up into the stratosphere and mm. affect the ozone mm. layer and those kinds of things but yeah there's not as much not as much understanding definitely so you're kind of saying our weather systems are wobbling in ways they never have before no no that's not what i'm saying right. they've always wobbled all oh, right they've always yeah, wobbled. they've always wobbled right yeah, they've always wobbled uh, there's a chance that it might happen more often but okay. it um that's an area of active research it's just to me i don't know maybe i am maybe i do know a bit about weather i am a bit about weather. <laughs> it's just it's fascinating to me to see yeah. a that you can predict it in in advance by yeah. knowing what's going up high in the atmosphere oh this is going to affect us trickle down and affect us in a couple of weeks yeah um, and it's also fascinating to think that that's just in the northern hemisphere uh, the southern hemisphere is a little bit different. We don't have as many land masses, and so uh, mm, the, the yeah, jet stream yeah. spins it's in a different, different way. But yeah. there's still some predictive things that we can do. I don't think we have time to talk yeah, about it today. No. But anyway, that's what your polar vortex is. It's a big, big column of sheepdogs protecting yeah. big donut um, of, of cold air. Yeah, look, it, it's fascinating. I love it, and I think um, it, it also. Because the Earth is so bloody big, mm. and yet the interplay between the equator and the poles is so intimate. Yes, and I, I love that how how subtle these changes can be, and how massive the effect 
of those changes yeah. can be on ground-based temperatures. Stuff like this. <clears throat> Amazing stuff. So anyway, we have to hand over to the team from Edith. Lyndon, thanks so much for talking about that. Oh, great to be back, Shane. Yep, we'll see you again in a couple of weeks, I think. Dr. Crystal, good to see you. I'm see you in a couple of weeks too, I think. I'm going to spend the next two weeks really trying to um, work out which one is my favourite element yeah. on the periodic table. I've got too many contenders right now, you know. Is it fluorine? Yeah. Is it tantalum? Oh, just, I'm a bit you can't just say that. You need a story. You need why. It's my yeah. favourite because of this. Liv, thanks for the Twitter feed. Uh, see, I'll always go for hydrogen because you can make every other element out of it. Yeah, there you go. Uh, I'm Doc Shane. Thanks for listening to Einstein and Go-Go. We're going to hand over to Edith. Remember, science is everywhere. And we'll chat to you again next week. Have a great Sunday. This has been a pododcast oh. from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly oh. independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.